I'm Barry Fern, and this is the Leading Conversations podcast, brought to your ears wherever you're listening, in partnership with Lane Media and the Marketing Society Scotland. Welcome back if you've tuned in before, and if you're a new listener, then thank you for joining us. Today, I'm joined by Jill Wiley and Vic Milne, and we're digging into strategy and planning in today's episode. Jill started working at Frame more than 20 years ago, starting out in account management, and she's now Head of Planning at Frame, the independent creative communications agency. Vic Milne began her career in planning at a London agency before a move back up to Scotland. She's also a relative veteran at her agency, Leith, where she's the Head of Strategy. Welcome. Hello. Hello. Today we're going to chat about planning and strategy and what that actually means in today's fast-moving, omni-channel, media-fragmented world. We're going to tap into my guests' vast experience and expertise and try and bust some of the myths into the planning and strategy mystique. Welcome to The Well Studio. Let's begin at the beginning and we'll take a short step back in time to where it all began. Vic, uh, my brief LinkedIn stalking tells me that you started your career in London, uh, just a year after me in fact. Tell us the story about how you found yourself in a planning role at Fitch. It wasn't a natural um, progression. I went to art school and studied fine art, uh, specifically sculpture. Um, and then I went to try and see if I could earn a living. Um, so I did film and television design. And th- it turns out that's not where my heart was. So I went to London and was a receptionist in the design agency that my brother worked in. Ah. So a bit of nepotism there for a kind of shit job. <laughs> <laughs> Where was it based? Um, and that was Rodney Fitch's, okay. which was an interior design um, company. Now, Rodney Fitch had been the founder of Fitch. Fitch had grown to quite a big branding agency by that stage, whereas Rodney Fitch's had... Um, retained its focus on in interiors so my brother's an interior designer um so i moved down um was a relatively rubbish receptionist but i was in the heart of this really interesting agency and sitting to the left of the reception desk was a man called leonard i can't remember his surname but he was what was called head of information back in 1996, I think it was. Because there wasn't a huge amount for me to do in reception, I I started helping Leonard with research, with really looking at the broadsheets. It Mm. was early, early days. You didn't, I mean, Google wasn't a thing. I used to read the broadsheets for him. I used to pick out, literally cut out with scissors, interesting articles, photocopy them, things like that. So that was my first step into what became a quite a long planning career. Um, so from that, I just answered an, a job ad in The Guardian for an information assistant at um, Fitch. And I got that job, I think, largely because I worked at Rodney Fitch's and they wanted to steal somebody from that agency. I mean, I really don't think it was anything to do with my skills at all. Because I didn't have Surely any, not. Really. <laughs> I, could, I could read a newspaper. That was as far as it went. But even this, the skill in this, surely, in terms of like finding the right stories that were going to help your colleague Leonard at the time. Yes, I think so. And I think it was making sure that you weren't, that you really could identify what was interesting and mm. really what mm. was potentially progressive and future yeah. facing. Um, because the it wasn't called a planning department because it was, it was the 90s in London, in um, Shoreditch, 
It was called a trends observatory. Of course it was. Of course <laughs> the it place was. that I ended up working. Name. Yeah, but it's actually, all coming back now as well. Yeah, actually, it was. Um, we were in offices above Smithfield Meat Market. Yeah, yeah, no, very yeah. well. Yeah, yes, yeah, so we were there, and so that was that's where I started. And this was in the early days of planning. Definitely the early days of strategy and planning for the brand and design industry. Sure. So this wasn't advertising that I worked in or yeah. marketing. Really, yeah. it was purely brand building, and design and we had a lot of big dubious clients like Lucky Strike and William Morris. I'm pretty sure we had an ammunitions client as well. But we also had lovely clients like Max Factor and L'Oreal and Bacardi and all those kind of things as well. So um, it was a good basis. Yeah, what a great start to your career. <clears throat> it was and it was completely accidental but very uh, serendipitous. Very good. And Jill, uh, what inspired an economics and IT programming graduate from the University of Glasgow to apply for that first job at Frame? It was, I generally no idea what I wanted to do. So I did a degree in economics and thought, no, I don't want to be an investment banker. That's not me. And then went traveling, came back, did a degree, a master's in Java programming just to be at uni for a bit longer because I still didn't know what I wanted to do. And through all that, I did quite a bit of temping to save up for going travelling. And one day, the temping agency sent me to the finance department of an office in Glasgow. And then when I got there, I realised it was an agency. I didn't really know what an advertising agency even was then. And very quickly made the leap from working in the finance department at Frame to being an account exec and joining client services. Still temping and then went away and came back and then they offered me a job. And I thought, actually, because at that point I was just about to take a job as a coder at a bank. Okay. And then I thought, oh, actually, no, that's much more fun. I'm going to do that. That's just everyone, people seem more interesting. The work, just something about it really clicked. Um, so really kind of sidestepped from having no idea what I want to do into client services in an agency essentially came in the back door. Um, at the time when loads of other people had kind of marketing degrees and had to go on graduate mm. programs. So essentially I was really lucky mm. um, getting in that way. And then stayed in client services for a long time, probably about maybe 12, 15 years. But throughout that time, always was kind of drawn towards more of the planning work. So we worked with Mary Baskin, um, who you may have heard of, she is a planner XJWT, um, and kind of learned lots from her on the job and just really liked planning. So, But it was quite late, I think, when then I actually had the confidence to then make that next leap from account director to planner and have never looked back since, I think. And do you think your economics degree background kind of helps in some way? Definitely. I think just that understanding how businesses work and understanding things from a kind of commercial objective point of view definitely I think Java programming probably for being quite analytical I think mm. nothing that I had done before really helped with the main thing though which is understanding customers and people and how they tick and that's just happened on the job I also did um, the IPA excellence diploma um, in its launch year and I think that really cemented a love for brands and how brands grow and just kind of understanding people and how kind of brands can 
connect with people. So yeah, definitely a kind of squiggly road in. But a squiggly road, yes. I like that. <laughs> and, and Vic, uh, less squiggly, um, on the contrary to Jill's switch from account management, you were straight into a planning role and have remained on that path ever since. Forget my receptionist career. Okay, yes. Well, that's new news. It didn't say that on LinkedIn. Um, but did you know that this was the sort of side of the agency, if, if there is such a thing, that you were best suited to? No. No. I, I really didn't. And I, because, and I think you're going to touch on it, Barry, is this mysticism mm. around planning. And I think in the 90s, that was the heyday of the mysticism. Yeah. So even though I was in the Trends Observatory, I was the lowest of the low information assistant and then I had the information manager above me and even even she didn't get the term planner or mm. strategist yeah. um, and then there were the planners and they were like I don't know the masons or something because it was all cloak and dagger and all like something magical happened and I couldn't get my head around what that was because I couldn't see the evidence of it being magical mm. I could just see quite logical intuitive creative thinking that ended up being something really inspirational for the creatives to jump off. Yeah. So um, I didn't know about getting into planning because I didn't quite know what planning was. Whilst having the knowledge that I do of, of London and, and more so advertising and media agency side, I guess, were those planners that you described there, were there a lot of egos around or not? Um, well, I think it's comparative because this was a big branding agency in the 90s mm. with like massive clients. So comparative with the creative director, their egos were minuscule. But <laughs> um, <laughs> um, with the rest of the department, yes. Uh, maybe it was ego, but I think they wanted to maintain some sort of mysticism, which I... And I, when we talk about the myth busting, I just feel is so unhelpful to our discipline. And for new people coming in as well, like that kind of crystal ball gazing perception of planning that is perpetrated by yeah. planners. It's kind of like this mystique that we give out. And it, yeah, it makes it, I think, I definitely find it hard to make the leap because I thought, oh no, I can't do that. It's too, not that it's too clever or too something, it was just too sort of clouded and yeah. uh, kind of like, oh, this is the stark art that we do over here and then just arrive with some clever thinking. It's kind of, it can be a bit kind of intimidating, I think, if you're surrounded by lots of kind of that kind of mystique and yeah, yeah especially at the start. Mm -hmm. And I think that we've got a role to just make it a far more democratic discipline because some of the I mean, it's the same with creativity. I mean, it's changed over the years. In my in the early years, if you put um, a creative starter on the bottom of a creative brief, that was a sure way to guarantee that the the creative team wouldn't go that way. Yes, that's changed now. Yeah. That, there's yeah. a, there's far more respect across the disciplines, across the agency, so. and sure. far more um, a sort of cross capability working where. You know, back in the day, if a planner came up with a proposition that actually could be reutilised as an end line, it just would, you know, they would reject it for yeah. all the yeah. wrong reasons, whereas yeah. that just doesn't happen anymore. So it would be great to um, just become a bit more democratic across it and not and not make it this thing where people say, oh, yeah, they're the brains of the agency. Yeah. As if I saying often get that, introduced as that. Yeah. Like, Please don't say As if that. saying that the other people within the agency yeah, it's a funny thing, isn't it? don't have that skill or don't have 
brilliant. You know, it's just, yeah. it, it's... Um, I've, it, I've battled with a similar thing from, you know, coming from a media background as I do, that, you know, media is absolutely a creative skill. You know, yeah. and there's innovation mm -hmm. and there's there's inspiration that comes out of media ideas, you know, every day, every week, every month. And then again, that's not just about my agency. That's media agencies mm -hmm. as a whole. Yeah. So I don't, I don't like being put in a box. You know, I'm, I'm a strategist and a planner too, because that's part of it's what I've been doing for the last quarter of a century. And it's good the way it's coincided with... It's not just about brands and brand building equals advertising. That's not what it's like anymore. And I think when planning started, it came from brand building type advertising agencies. So it hasn't been around as long as some other disciplines. I think it's only been about 50 years. Mm -hmm. And I think JWT and an agency in America kind of at roughly the same time decided to combine what was previously separate departments of market research creative development research and media planning into one sort of think tank department with the objective of, I can't remember I read it the other day, with the objective of creating value for client businesses by making creative more effective. And actually that objective is still the same of planning. I borrow that line. Yeah, <laughs> um, I think that was a Jeremy Wilmore line. Um, that objective of why they started a, a, what they called account planning which was the original name for it, you would be account planner. Um, that objective is still the same, isn't it? But the way we do it now has changed so much that it is more cross-department. It is more about a varied skill set, whereas in the past, it was almost like planning was the job that took you to advertising and it was kind of very stuck in there, yeah. whereas now it has to be wider than that. It can't just be about... Which comes back to the about, media fragmentation, omnichannel yeah, universe, yeah. It can't just be about being kind of like a traditional brand planner. It's so much more now, mm -hmm. isn't it? And it has, and I think keeping our minds, sorry if I'm jumping ahead here, on the purity of effectiveness is really important yeah. because if you were going to boil down and simplify what is the point of a planner in an agency, it is to ensure maximum effectiveness. Yeah. Um, and that is why we're important to clients, but yeah. equally why it makes our jobs quite difficult sometimes because we have to sit in, in the middle saying, this is for your end user and you're all forgetting who that is sometimes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that doesn't happen yeah. quite so often now, but often the client and the creative team are not your end user. So I guess the effectiveness requires us to be the voice of the consumer or the end user, because it's not always a consumer, appreciate that, within the agency. And I I, I, I don't think it's changed. I think the purity of effectiveness is, is our point. Yeah. I think that's a great summary. Let's just take one little step back and appreciate us jumping straight into the crux uh, of the discussion there. But I think for the purpose of the breadth of our broad listenership, um, I'd like to focus on starting at the basics rather yeah. than maybe the more highfalutin aspects of Strat. Um, so We're playing to character there. <laughs> this is probably a question that you've both been asked in the past. I certainly have been. Um, how do you describe the role of a planner or a strategist to a friend or family member who works in an entirely different industry? Jill? I don't know if my parents really know what I do. I don't know if I've ever probably described it in an effective enough way. But and actually, I find um, even within the industry, so if I'm being introduced in, to new clients, I sometimes describe it and then describe five things that I do, <laughs> which in and of itself is kind of problematic. But I guess at the crux of it, it's to understand people and how they behave and then how we can help brands persuade them to behave or do or think something differently. And I think it's that, usually it's that 
people and behavior bit, but sometimes actually if you describe yourself that way to someone outside of advertising or marketing, they kind of look at you and think, oh my God, mm-hmm. is that mean? <laughs> <laughs> Coercive? Um, but yeah, I think it's about helping make good work. And I think the nub of it is helping brands to grow and people understand that mm-hmm. is kind of, and that goes back to creative work. And, and Vic, when you've been asked this question or a similar version of the question, how do you respond? I think I have to just go straight into the Machiavellian <laughs> side of advertising. Uh-huh. And it's down to us to figure out how to make people do what we want them to do. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's that persuasion. And, yeah. that's, uh, and that's where the our, our job comes in, is how are you going to... And that's not always Machiavellian, to be fair, because we do a lot of behaviour change work. Yes. Yeah. And we want people to get checked early for cancer, or we want yeah. people to stop driving too fast. Um, so it's not all, you know, just buy some whiskey or buy yeah. some fizzy juice. Um, but fundamentally... That's it. We yeah. just, we do the bit which is like, we think this is going to work. And then sometimes I, I try and make it sound a little bit sexy and say, um, we kind of come up with the beginning of the idea. Yeah. Mm. Oh, I really like that. Yeah. yeah. That's Creative jumping off point. There we go. But yeah, it is interesting in itself is that there's not like, a, it's not like I'm a dentist, I fix teeth. Exactly. It's mm. quite yeah. challenging sometimes to explain. Um. The variety of it as well. And I think that's one of the things I love about the role is it's not just one thing. Like there's mm-hmm. quite a lot in there and it make, that's what keeps it very interesting yeah, a lot, a, every a lot day. Of the friends, my friends I grew up with, you know, they're plumbers or they're builders or they're taxi drivers. You know, their jobs do what they say on a tin, whereas I can't describe my job that easily either. We touched on a bit of this already, but just maybe if we could delve a little bit into some of the myths of planning and strategy you'd like to quash today you know in my experience there's certainly been some misunderstanding over the years of exactly what strategy and planning is any examples any myths you'd like to quash while you're here i get really irritated when people say what's the model for brand building or creative strategy or whatever and it's there's not one Mm-hmm. It's not like you go through a course that says, okay, any client that comes to you, regardless, this is the model you go through. Yes, there are certain pieces of information that you absolutely need to know, but every single client's needs are nuanced. Yeah, Fundamentally, they, they, they want you to help them have effective campaigns and change behaviour. But um, I, I get a little bit... An, irritated that that people think just give me a model I can go and sell to a potential new business client we don't need you there yeah. mm. in the meeting yeah just like this is how our planners do it and it was like well no just take a strategist with you and um it's a lot of it's to do with listening and not talking mm-hmm. um so that annoys me People yeah. thinking that we just have this like off the shelf yeah there's no model. one size fits all <laughs> Jill, what will go in your room 101 of uh, this this type of subject? I think there's probably a little bit of crossover between planning and research and that kind of, it's probably similar actually, that kind of, there's a lack of understanding I guess and probably because we don't help people to understand and that kind of right at the heart of what a planner does, that leap between data and knowledge 
and getting to the creative brief, there's a bit in there that isn't science or theory. That's that intuition and creative jumping off point. And I think that's probably the bit that's most understood. Yeah. And I guess that goes back to pigeonholing, doesn't it? Where there's client services in this box, there's planning in this box and creative in this box. And actually it's that combined. Because I guess creativity isn't linear, is it? So it's kind of that combined yeah. kind of circular development and how planners fit in within an agency. Yeah, I think that's a brilliant point actually because, and I'm guilty of this, so I think I've already used the term earlier when we talk about planning being the voice of the consumer yeah. in the agency. And I'm guilty of putting us in that box because, and I can put us in that box because I would precede that sentence with, the account handlers are the voice of the client in the agency. Yeah. And that's mm. not fair because it's they not. are not. They're, they're, they are their own practitioners with great ideas and great thoughts. It goes completely against everything I was saying earlier yeah. about um, democracy. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm very guilty of it because sometimes you need to put people in boxes to say, right, really simply, this is how it works. And actually yeah. it's not. Yeah. It's that connection and collaboration yeah. that sometimes we get to the best stuff so we sometimes do a instead of kind of getting to the ta-da this is the creative brief and look at me I've got to a brief and isn't this brief amazing we sometimes do a, quite a few steps before that where we essentially kick it around together and mm -hmm. that's where sometimes the better direction comes from so I think yeah that pigeonholing was probably one of the things whether it's a myth or a kind of point of frustration but or a point of need to undo um, but yeah, I think undoing that actually helps the creative process. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, as any regular listeners to the pub will know, I like to try and simplify things as much as possible. Um, my role these days in running the business is is to know a little about a lot, as opposed to the other way around, uh, where I had been a specialist in different roles in the past. But ultimately, deep down, I'm both a strategist and a planner. Um, and my simplification of this far more complicated subject is that strategists and planners can be described as solution providers, troubleshooters, and problem solvers. But I'm interested in your views on this. What do you think of my summary? Is it right? Or is it more complicated than that? I think it's I think it's less complicated less, than that. Yeah. I would say problem solvers and forget the other two. Yeah. I was going straight to problem, I think. <laughs> and defining the type of problem is one of the biggest things we do. So the business problem is not the creative answer, whereas quite often that makes its way into a creative brief. So our problem is we need to sell more X is never going to end up with a good idea that's really effective and I think the leap that we make is turning that into the consumer problem back to that being the consumer so like that's where that creative leap is within planning and it's being able to define a problem in a way that leads to a creative idea or a creative jumping off point yeah. and I think that's the biggest part that we play in leading to work that's more creative. I, I agree and often um in a client brief, you will get an awful lot of um, growth targets and goals and KPIs mm. and things mm -hmm. like that, which is wonderful for their business. And operationally, that's great. And that's and you need where it. they should live. What you don't get is them telling you what the barriers are mm -hmm. to their success. So what are their problems? So actually being a problem solver, which sounds like a very simplistic way, you've got to spend quite a lot of time unearthing what the problems are in the first yes. instance because they're difficult to find out. What you'll get a lot in a client brief as well, which is wonderful and helpful, are what the opportunities mm. in the market are. But, maybe like, not but the we threats. want to know why people aren't doing it mm -hmm. right yeah. now. And that's the most important thing for us to to 
help solve that problem because yeah. if we don't know why they're not doing it, we can't we can't solve it. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, it's back to people, isn't it? And I guess we're kind of guilty as an industry of overemphasizing the importance that we play in customers' minds or lives and kind of mm -hmm. pulling it back from being just about the brand to being from the customer's point of view and actually, is that how they behave? Or is can we even get them to think like that? Did people even think like that? Or yeah, there's just, there's loads in there, isn't there? There is, there is. We could <laughs> unpick and unpack that all day. Um, something maybe a little more highbrow, I'm keen to get your views on, uh, that came up in our kind of pre-pod chat. Um, what about the balance of instinct and intuition versus evidence-based strategy? Is there an optimal blend or is it just dependent on the client brief, on the problem? I think things like evidence are hugely important, but it's what you do with that evidence. And that's the instinct that planning brings and the intuition. Because, I mean, we nowadays we've got all the data in the world and we can even just find it by going into Google Trends and seeing what people are doing. But it, it's being able to see through that data and find something that's an interesting thing. And I think that's where that kind of balance of art and science lies. That's what I love about planning. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I'll go back to my bugbear about being too theoretical and having a model, etc. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so I think if you don't have intuition and gut feel, you, you don't really have a hypothesis mm -hmm. to start to look at. And Arguably, with the data that we have, you could kind of make any argument for, for anything. anything. You can cut it in so many different ways. So that, with that in mind, I feel you kind of need to to have at least some hypotheses to begin with that have yeah. to come out of the information that you've got in front of you. Yeah. Because I don't think you'd ever get your job done, would you? Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Be there all day. I mean, you could... <laughs> Start with looking at the data and then try and come to a hypothesis, but it's just so wide and varied and challenging. And I think that's probably maybe where I started with less confidence, more junior, would start with the data. But I think if you do it the other way around and you have intuition and instinct and a point of view and then see if there is data to support it, that's where it works mm. better. And I mean, evidence is absolutely crucial because you cannot convince your creative director and your client to do something if you don't have the yeah. evidence. Yeah. And you can't really back up a hypothesis unless you have all the evidence there. So, And that requires understanding the consumer from yeah. a non-demographic point of view, from an instinct and behaviours point of view, understanding the opportunity in the marketplace. So what are your competitors doing? Is there an opportunity yeah. there? Because it's all very well having a hypothesis and thinking this is a brilliant idea and then find out that X insurance agency is just about to, insurance companies just about to launch an ad that's exactly the, the same. same. So yeah. it's finding your, your niche. I mean, so the evidence is, is required. So I, I don't think we've given you a very clear answer on that but it's you need both of it but I personally can't start with the data because I wouldn't no, ever get never anywhere. get anything done yeah. now I, I I agree with that 100 percent and the reality is the answer to the question there is there isn't an optimal yeah. plan because it and does I, depend on the problem there's mm -hmm. an opposite side as well and if you look at like especially with focus groups and qual data you can have an over-reliance on what people say mm. and you especially need instinct and intuition in that situation because that kind of research and data is not there for decision making. It's there for kind of 
understanding. So Nuggets. I think there's some examples yeah. of brilliant ads. I think John Lewis Christmas one was one of them where it bombed in focus groups. And actually, if you'd just gone with that, you they would never mm -hmm. have ran. So I guess that's where you can have an over-reliance on research, oh. actually to the detriment of creative well, effectiveness. Well, it's interesting you mentioned John Don't Lewis. Don't get me started on that's creative a whole other research. Podcast. That's a whole other podcast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good idea. That could be episode 14. Um, I actually remember a talk from, I think his name's Craig Inglis, um, at one of the Marketing Society St. Andrew's Day dinners, and he talked about not doing creative research for exactly or that do reason. do it, but be very clear on its objectives. And mm -hmm. Quite easy, especially as a client, I think it's quite easy to say, right, we've spoken to 18 people, and actually six of them said this, so now it's really scary and I don't want to go with this. And actually when you push against differences of opinion sometimes that's where the best results happen so again it's just it also reminds me of an episode instant. of the apprentice you know where they go out and they do their market research and then they come back to the rest of the team and they don't tell them anything negative they just talk yeah. about the positives and it goes back to your point Vic about you can kind of spin a story from somewhere mm, yeah. and create a hypothesis I mean you can find it's... a theory for anything as well can't you can oh, find a behavioral science nudge for anything that you've decided to do yeah and, and back just... it up in that way but it's what you do with the insight so I, yeah so it's in the analysis of the, you know, not to go on about what I feel about creative development research, but it's in the analysis of that research that you get the insight that will really, really work. Yeah. It's not just a five said no. I mean, because it's qualitative. It's not quantitative. Yes. Yeah. And it's like five said no and six said yes. And it's like, that's not telling me anything. What bits deep. of it will make the work work harder? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's almost like I plan this because I've got a little insight <laughs> case study to to share with you because i'm really interested in, in in any similar experiences you've had so whenever i get into a new project or a brief i'm always looking for the kernel the key nugget of information that lights that initial spark of an idea and and this isn't necessarily the kernel that focuses on visions or goals or objectives as you said earlier but it could be something that's been overlooked or a new piece of information or maybe there's a gap in the competitive marketplace and one campaign I'm reminded of when thinking about this a bit deeper and finding this kernel isn't a campaign that I've been involved in planning personally, but in fact, it was a Scottish Government uh, awards paper about smoking cessation that I judged at the Star Awards a few years ago. And despite all the historic wealth of smoking cessation campaigns over the years, the planning team at Story had discovered a new kernel of information that was buried in the depths of the reams of the research. And the kernel was actually really hidden in plain sight. As all of the research pointed towards the fact that the vast majority of smokers, around 80%, relapse within the first few days of a quit attempt. So most previous campaigns on smoking cessation, not just in Scotland, but across, across the UK and probably beyond, had focused on trying to reach what were known as the rejectors, i.e. those who didn't want to stop smoking. And campaign scare tactics were understandably the norm. But the key nugget was actually amongst the intenders, i.e. those who did intend to stop, but just not today or soon. And this group needed to know that when they tried to quit, that there was help on hand to get them through. And on a modest budget, certainly compared to the tobacco giants at the time, interesting you were mentioning Lucky Strike and uh, William Morris, the campaign shifted the intenders' motivations to quit upwards while simultaneously nudging the rejectors' motivations too. So a, a, a very uh, successful campaign that just reminded me of the importance of that kernel of knowledge. And the kernel of knowledge in this particular campaign was all about that crucial 72 hours. But to nudge those people within that group to say, well, if you're thinking about it, there's help at hand. 
Vic, does a campaign spring to mind to you whether Colonel or that key nugget generated some significant behavioural change? The first one that springs to mind is also Scottish Government, so apologies for being on the, the, the same thing. Um, it's not one that I worked on, but I have this colleague who's just amazing and brilliant. Her name is Leona, and she works on uh, the safety cluster of the government, and specifically on road safety, this example is. I guess it's showing the power of the insight, and this was consumer insight gathering amongst young men. So the problem is young men feel completely invulnerable behind the wheel, and they also... Um, simultaneously reject authority. Mm. So you're in a right old kind of mess if you're trying as the government to say, um, don't drive fast, don't drive erratically, don't look at your phone when you're driving. You know, many, many, many things that you don't want these people who feel completely invulnerable um, and reject authority to do. So in the insight gathering, lots and lots of insight, lots of things came through, but there was one key thing that was just so single-minded that Leona and the team pulled out was after a lot of questioning, the moderator got to the point where what, if anything would make you rethink the way that you drive and being more responsible. And I think they used the term, if there was precious cargo in the car. And rather than just leaving it at that, at that I think the moderator did a wonderful job to say, what is, pre okay, great, precious cargo. What is precious cargo? So they went through like kids, friends, da da da, da. And it just came down to really simply... My gran. Yeah, I remember the oh, campaign. Yes, it was yes, fabulous, yes. and it was specifically their gran. Yeah, and yeah. they and that is a level of authority that they would never want to do anything that made their gran disappointed or, or um, uh, you know, felt bad about them or you know, it was, they, it was a level of respect that they don't have for their parents, yeah. that they wouldn't have for smaller, yeah. younger cousins or anything like that. It was a level of respect. And I mean, talk about showing the strategy in the ads. It was just, you know, drive like your grand's in the car. Yeah. It's right the, there. And the humour was yeah. brilliant. Yeah. You know, and also, but it was very, oh, it was very well done. Yeah. Well done, Leona. Well done, Leona. <laughs> Wonderful work. Probably a really good summation because I don't know if we've been a bit woolly at all, but of where that planning yeah. benefit mm -hmm. is isn't exactly. it in terms been, of that yeah. creative understanding mm -hmm. the actual consumer problem or being able to look at it from different perspectives and then find a way that's gonna be a creative emotional hook mm -hmm. it's great i think Vic's raised the bar there so don't want to put the pressure on but do you I'm have a similar right. example that, that springs to mind just like trying to think of one then that's not behavior change something else maybe subway stores actually we worked a while back with subway and their business problem was we need to get more new customers coming through the doors. We're falling behind McDonald's and Burger King. How do you do that? And actually their big thing was made fresh in front of you. So you go in and there's like hundreds of things to choose from and you say exactly what you want in your sub and it gets done. It's all very fast and the next person's waiting. And we worked in subway stores to kind of just understand that process. So I got to be a sandwich artist. <sighs> Which was great but fascinating um and actually one of the creative kind of jumping off points was if you're new that whole benefit of subway that makes it different to any other qsr is actually really really intimidating mm -hmm. because you're standing there and you don't know how to order and there's 
a big queue behind you and you're kind of quite, they were under pressure and getting flustered. So then it wasn't a good experience. So why come back? And that's sort of where the sub of the day came from, that kind of point and order thing. Ah, very interesting. But I think it's that not jumping straight to just making it about the obvious thing that makes that brand different to its competitors, but actually really, really understanding that customer journey and was the it, customer kind of feeling in that moment and the That's barrier. That's what I was going to say. Was, yeah. the, was the barrier that some people are indecisive and therefore you're asking them to choose to their choose bread. Too much. You're asking, so, do you want it hot? Well, do you want you this in it? Do you want salad? To, straight back to, and then we needed a theory slide. It's choice paralysis. Mm. Yeah. And that kind of just frozen in the moment and then that being a bad experience of that type of restaurant. So then you go back to McDonald's where you just point and say Big Mac. So actually yeah. that kind of being able to look at it from different perspectives, being able to look at it versus what the competition are doing. But yeah, just having those jumping off points, I think, then leads to a different way of working. Yeah, it's very interesting. I touched on this in the intro, but I think it's worth a bit further discussion, certainly with uh, more than 20 years' experience, each respectively under your belts. Then surely with the impact of media fragmentation and omnichannel consumers, then are your jobs getting harder? Or actually does the plethora of research tools and data insights make your jobs a little easier these days than, say, 10 or so years ago? I think there's some elements where it's easier to get data faster and cheaper so it's a lot faster the process in some ways because we have a plural kind of a huge amount of free information so we can see how people are searching we can see what people are doing in different kind of social media and that tells us a lot about behavior very quickly I think there's also more traps though as well where you can only look at that and stop looking at the person and only look at how they behave on social media um, because that data is so readily available. So there's, I think there's good and bad. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I I, th I think um, the, a couple of things. The, the platform fragmentation, I would take us back to one of our first questions is what's at the heart of being a strategist that hasn't changed regardless mm -hmm. of where yeah. your advert is going to end up mm -hmm. whether it's you know you, when you get down to production and some types of behavioral science and the length of an ad or the production values etc that's massively changed but when it comes to the understanding what motivates people or understand what the barrier is, all, all that effectiveness, what you need to go into something being effective is exactly the same regardless of the platform that it's going to end up on. In terms of the amount of data and information that we have, I think it's it's unhelpful in many ways. It can be a bit of a curse Yeah, sometimes. as well, yeah. because as we've already touched upon, you can kind of get data to support any Hypothesis. Yeah. yeah, and too much data equals analysis paralysis sometimes. Yeah, you exactly. You just can't make yeah. decisions, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So it, it's always nice if you do have a nice, clean, here are some, here's some commissioned consumer um, insight research that you can write. Yeah. Because yeah. you've already identified what the, that is beautiful and pure. Yes. <laughs> and you can and say, easy. I don't want. Ten questions, Yeah, ten I don't answers. want to look at any other data. Yeah in this because the, the job that we've got is focused on this so this is what we're working with so that 
doesn't happen as often because people, you know, a lot of people are like, surely the data's out there already. Well, yeah. no, actually, you do need to commission something Very and design well. a piece of work around your own questions, and then you'll get the best yeah, result. Yeah, completely yeah, agree with you sense. because you can find anything, can't you? Mm -hmm. That you can look at the data anyway. Okay, I've got uh, one final question on the subject, especially for any client side listeners out there. How can clients make the most of the planning resources that are available to them at their agencies? Budgets for primary research. <laughs> On that last point that Vic just yeah, made. Yeah, yeah, very appropriate. <laughs> but it is a challenge because yeah. there's a sort of perception that there's a lot of data or the client already has masses of data, but it doesn't always support the thing that we're trying to find out about people and how they think and behave. So I think more emphasis on research mm. and ability to kind of conduct primary research or kind of bespoke research. Yeah, I think so. I think um, more collaboration upstream in the process. So uh, with some of our clients that we've been working with for, you know, decades and decades, we're involved at br throughout the whole of brand planning in the year. We're we're involved before they even come up with an idea for NPD. And therefore, they have their strategist, their planner, there to take a different look at things or to, to come in with insight that we might have or help them with insight. So, I mean, it's not easy for every client, but if you were to get um, a planner or strategist involved at the earliest possible stages mm. of your brand planning or your campaign development, that's always yeah. going to be the most useful thing. Yeah, I really yeah. agree with that. And I think often the procurement process doesn't help us as planners because quite often maybe more in public than private sector, but there's a very procurement-led short lifespan of mm. projects and it kind of doesn't always help us do our jobs to the best of our ability if we're kind of zoomed in and out and there's kind of short six-month projects. Mm -hmm. You kind of don't get to do that full journey. Also, I love it when um, clients like to set KPIs and pitches for the planning and it's <laughs> like, I mean, the effectiveness of your campaign is going to be yes. the KPIs, but you can't judge us halfway through the process yeah. for our KPIs yeah. because um, that's happening less and less. Yes. Yeah. Although yeah. as businesses are under more pressure just financially and commercially, what I've experienced sometimes is KPIs set at board level based on the finance that's needed as opposed to what's actually achievable in the marketplace, and that can make the perception of how well or on um, how well or effective a campaign has been really skewed because it's being compared versus quite pie in the sky KPIs. But actually, when you look at it in context, it's sometimes performed really well versus competitors. And I think a big bit of our job is being able to tell that story of effectiveness that education and, piece, mm -hmm, yeah. simply and kind of I've certainly seen context. my fair share of finger in the air KPIs let's say I have a feeling the three of us could talk about this for much longer but uh, as I've always said let's uh, let's make the podcast links about the commute of the M8 uh, I know some of our listeners certainly uh, <laughs> like it that way that's about two hours <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe today um, but like all good things sadly I'll need to bring our conversation uh, towards a close but before we do so I'm bringing back an old favourite of the Leading Conversations podcast <laughs> I'm going to invite you both to imagine a fantasy dinner. The three of us are going out for a meal and we can all bring a guest or two. Uh, however, your invitees should be someone that has either helped 
or inspired you in the past? So it could be somebody that you looked up to in the early days of your careers or somebody gave you a chance, or it could just be someone that you know or don't know. Who's joining us? I think Kaylee. Well, I'd love that. <laughs> Who's going to argue? I've always been a big, big fan. Just Who's because gonna argue with that? the fascination I have with her ability to continually reinvent and stay relevant. Like she's the classic brand reinvention story, isn't oh, she? She's amazing. No, she's got wine now. Yeah. She's just lovely as well, oh. isn't she? Yeah. She oh, actually we, we formed part of that, the IPA yeah. Excellence Diploma course. And even back then when I did it, which was quite a while ago, she was like a classic reinvention story and has managed to continue doing that for another 20 years. Yeah. Um, I am going to invite a fictional character. Is mm. that allowed? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, whatever you like. This so, is a fantasy dinner. We're not actually going. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would like to invite Carmela Soprano, but not Edie Falco, not the oh, actress. Okay. Okay. The character. Carmela Soprano, yes. the character. Because for people who are interested in people, I think she is a walking contradiction, but really interesting. interesting so yeah. she, on the surface, is a deeply religious. Mm. Um, her family is at the heart of everything she does. But equally, she is the matriarch of a huge mafia empire and therefore luxury, expensive things, uh, uh, are more important to her than arguably her ch our children's safety. <laughs> and there's so many contradictions yeah. in there. And there's so many things when we you watch The Sopranos. the way we see we Yeah, do. exactly. You know, talk about real behaviour versus claimed behaviour. Yeah. Yes. Oh, get Carmela Soprano yeah. on there. So much in there. And let's see what kind of, how we can dig around what motivates her. Yes. I think I would love to. And I would like her to cook her Zito Al Forno for us. <laughs> Uh, she's also got the best pronunciation of coffee. I'm not going to try yeah. it on this podcast that um, I've ever heard, but that's a great idea. What a great idea. Her and Kaylee got on brilliantly. Yeah. So we just led one guest each. Can no, no, you more? can have more. I mean, I'm, I'm quite keen to invite James Gandolfini as well now, you know. Um, as Tony Soprano or uh, as another character? Well, I th no, I think as himself. I think as, as himself, himself as opposed mm -hmm. to as Tony Soprano because I'm sure the act, the person was um, was was more up my street than the, the character. Who else? <laughs> Iris Apfel? Oh, tell me more. Oh, yeah, just the fashion, for the fashion mm. yeah, icon in her mm. 90s now. Just for that, age does not define you. It's the mindset rather than a number, all of that. She's amazing. Even just see what she would wear today. Yeah, I know. But she's hugely she inspirational. Is Westwood-esque then, no? No, she's, she's the one with the massive Big glasses, glasses. yes. Yeah, so and she's from in New York. I, I think it's fair to say, are allowed to say this, elderly lady? Yes, I think she's, she's 90-something now. Wow. Yes, yes, I think it's fair Model, to say. Model, fashion icon, but just a she's amazing. person icon as well. Like, just, yeah. I don't know, there's also some people I think I might have intellectual crushes on a like Alan Cumming to come to dinner. I'd quite like to have a cup of tea with him. Oh, he's lovely. He's See, I've always liked Alan Cumming, but my wife and my youngest son, they're currently watching this thing. What's he called? The Traitors. Not the Traitors US. US. And he's, he's just he's such a send-up of himself. He is. Yeah, he's like a sorry, parody Alan, of a Scotsman. I agree. I'm just, I'm overhearing bits when they're watching it. I'm not really tuned yeah. in myself, but I'm like, Alan, I, I feel like he's sold himself out. Yeah, I, I think he's, he's acting out for the American yeah. Yeah, agreed. audience. However... In Alan and Miriam, 
Oh, it's that's brilliant. Your, he's, I admire him as well. Yeah. And when he talks about his upbringing and things like that. Yeah. If I was going to take somebody else, I have got a massive crush on Stacey Solomon. Do you know, I've been fascinated I, everybody by her loves recently. Stacey, she is she's amazing. She's so real, isn't she? She's, she's just bloody lovely. Yeah, yeah agreed. What a nice person. We watched but, the Cleaning Your House programme oh, the other God, day. It's yes. brilliant. What's well, it called? it's called... Sort your, sort life, your out. life out with Stacey Solomon. Like, we yes, need please, to sort Stacey. Life out. Come. You come over, yes. you lovely person. Could she come to our house for the dinner though and sort it out? Well, yeah. she's also, there. she's yeah. got depth to her, and I agree with her opinions of the royal family. I don't know her opinions on the royal family. What I would say is that <laughs> I think she she does um, people from Essex, me included. Uh, a great service because yeah. some people from Essex have a bad reputation. Well, and Stacey is incredible. I even remember still her first audition. On, I assume it was Britain's Got Talent, mm-hmm. but just the way, the authenticity, the way mm-hmm. she came across, and the judges immediately loved her. And I think most people, most people do. Would yeah. I just think they would? How she's yeah. grown her own brand as well, oh, but wonderful. just so subtly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, she's... those were not the answers I was expecting. <laughs> oh. <laughs> However, I would that would be an amazing dinner, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, I'm going to actually bring one more person along as well, uh, and and this is a guy who um, I hadn't heard of until some point a couple of years ago, but he's an American professor called. Richard Rummelt um, and appropriately to today's conversation he's the author of an incredible book called Good Strategy, Bad Strategy um, and in this book he covers everything from brand strategy to the strategy of war uh, several real life stories from Steve Jobs transforming Apple where he strips it back to basics when they're struggling financially but at the time he was patiently waiting for the next big thing which ultimately became the iPod. So it's an incredible story. Um, but he also talks about why Kennedy's goal of landing a man on the moon was actually a strategic masterstroke in terms of where the, the Cold War was at the time and that sort of thing. So it's a thoroughly recommended read for all strategists and budding strategists out there. I'd like to see what he makes of Carmela Soprano. Yes. Well, we can almost get someone to illustrate this, yeah. couldn't we? This would be great. My wholehearted thanks to, to, to you both for coming along to the Well Studio for this engaging and very enlightening lightning conversation today thank, thank you very you. much very good time yes my thanks again to keith at Woosh for his production expertise as ever i hope our listeners have enjoyed our conversation and there is a nugget or a kernel or two from the experiences and opinions we discussed today that our listeners may recall and refer to in the future as ever, I'm always keen to hear more from our listeners, so please drop me a line at barry at If you'd like to say hello, tell me what you like or dislike about the pod and anything our listeners would like to hear for future episodes. Thank you for joining me, Barry Fern from Lane Media on the Leading Conversations podcast. If you've enjoyed the pod, head over to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you tune into podcasts or search Leading Conversations and follow for immediate access to future episodes and our back catalogue.